Welcome to the symposium. Today we are joined by Dr. Benedict Beckelt and Dr. David Thunder. Uh, hello to both. Hello, Hi, good to be here. Um, I must say I'm very happy to be talking to you again. I remember we have done interviews separately and I thought that it would be a very good idea if uh, all of us had a discussion. Yeah, sounds good it's to me. It's our pleasure. Great. So we are very pleased here at the Lotus Eaters to have uh, both of you again talking about uh, things like the present state of uh, Western societies, what is not working, what, what is working, what should be preserved, and whether there are grounds for optimism or pessimism. Of course, th these are very abstract questions. I'm sure the, the answer will be very qualified, but let me just say that uh, I think that it will going to be a very good discussion. May I ask uh, both of you uh, to tell to the audience where they can find uh, more of your work, please? If you like, I can begin. Um, so my professional website is my name, davidthunder.com, davidthunder altogether, davidthunder.com. And I also have a blog, the Freedom Blog, which, which uh, people can find at uh, davidthunder.substack.com. So they're the two places they can find me. Great. And? Yeah, I had the same idea, uh, myname.com, so benedictbeckeld.com, that's my website. And uh, Benedict Beckeld is my handle um, pretty much everywhere, uh, Twitter and uh, uh, Facebook and so on, so. That is great. So. I think we should split our discussion in two sections. The one, the first is the question, the revolves around the question, where are we right now in Western societies? And uh, several question, sub questions that are related to it. And the second one is where should we go? So I would like, I would basically like to moderate a discussion between the two of you. My goal is not to speak so much, but listen to what you are going to say and how you are going to interact with each other. So I would like to ask you, I think uh, the first question is, what do you think are the main problems that Western societies face at the moment? Do you want to begin again? Sure. Um, Okay, so Western societies, what are the problems facing Western societies? Um, I think that the fundamental problem facing Western societies today is a cultural problem uh, more than an institutional problem um, because I see institutional pathologies as very often derivative from, from cultural pathologies. And so I think that there's a declining understanding of basic concepts of, of, of a civil society, such as rule of law, freedom, uh, equality, freedom of expression, uh, constitutionalism. And um, I, I believe that these misunderstandings or this impoverished understanding was amply manifested during the pandemic in the readiness with which people accepted very severe restrictions of their liberties. Uh, so I guess I'll kick, kick off the discussion by, by, by making the claim that there is a kind of cultural degradation that is happening in the West. 
Yeah, no, I uh, certainly agree with that. And uh, I think the cultural degradation, well, it's something, I think it's uh, something we all share uh, in common in our, in our respective work, uh, a discussion of that cultural degradation. And uh, I think one sees this as a common theme of mine, but I think there are so many various uh, indicators across the cultural board that this is in fact the case. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the civic aspect, and I think that's a big part of it, the decline in uh, public education. Uh, people know less and less, and that, that's also part of um, part of the um, of an increase of a hyper egalitarianism. You might say you mentioned equality or egal uh, equality, I think, uh, which is important. But we've gotten um, to the point where uh, it has become so important that that uh, consideration, I think, has been allowed to crowd out everything else. The the consideration of equality or egalitarianism, uh, which degrades such things as public education, for example. Because if everyone um, has to be, if everyone is supposed to be equally educated, then uh, then the quality of public education will decrease, and I think we see that across the board, across public schools and across universities, certainly in this country here in the United States, but in Europe as well. And uh, so that contributes to it. People don't understand uh, the roots of their own culture anymore. What has come before us, which leads to a decrease in gratitude, I would say, uh, for what we have. Uh, and uh, and to uh, taking it for granted, and that of course also uh, I think contributes to a uh, um, to a cheapening of our culture because one doesn't really understand it anymore. And then of course, yeah, one there, that's that's one item. Whether uh, it's the uh, the question of what's wrong with our society could be a long list, of course, but uh, that's certainly one of them. Yeah. Okay, so might, might I add? Might might I just add to that? Just the problem of emotivism. Um, the sense of being so caught up in our emotional responses to the world that we're not able to take a step back and take some distance from the immediate feelings that we're experiencing, the immediate things that are happening, um, to have even any sense of historical context, the sense of a bigger picture, the sense that we are on the shoulders of giants, the sense of what we do now will have consequences for future generations, um, and so on. And I, th I think Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, underlines the problem of emotivism and i would like to echo that that i think there is an excessive kind of living within the emotional world in a way that is separated from rationality and uh, objectivity Ma uh, and, i want to sorry sorry benedict yeah. Yeah, no, i was gonna add yeah sorry we're already now uh, i guess building uh, on what uh, the other is saying um the um no, i was gonna add that this emotivism that you mentioned i think that's also an expression of the sort of hyper individualism um, which goes along with hyper egalitarianism because if one if one uh, if one uh, does not understand the culture that has come before us and that uh, you said uh, uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants and so on if one doesn't understand that anymore then one's own person becomes the sole social unit of importance nothing else matters there is only the individual and this sort of hyper individualism I think is always indicative of declining cultures and uh, and hyper individualism of course will contributes to emotivism because uh, what we think and what we feel, what the individual person thinks and feels becomes the only thing that matters. And so uh, I think that all uh, comes together. Yeah. I wanted to add uh, the notion of reason as one of the notions that are very much misunderstood. And a lot of the time, there is much more to it than just understanding it as an intellectual power. Because we could say that even if we go back to the pre-Socratics, the notion of 
reason, in a way, uh, uh, referred to a noble aspect of the soul that was also distinct from the emotions. And one of the traditional, we could say cardinal virtues, had to do with temperance, which was the control of emotions and the other aspects of the soul by reason, at least in uh, thinkers like Plato. So it seems to me that the notion of reason has been misunderstood as well as the other concept that you're mentioning. So it seems to me that one good area of research would have to be the intellectual, would would concern the intellectual history of ideas with respect to these notions. But this is, of course, a very intellectual pursuit. So I would like to add that when it, when people do not understand the notion of reason, and when we forget as a society the importance that reason is supposed to have, we cannot engage in public discussion anymore. And the institution of public discussion or the institution of rational debate gets completely eroded because people are not willing enough to claim that we are not going to take it anymore and we are going to have debates. And just because the feelings of some people are hurt from uh, debates, that is not a reason to silence debates and silence free speech and name any concern, uh, any dissenting voice as being a hater who utters hate speech. Yes, I, I agree. I think uh, basically there's a kind of a, a fragility, uh, an emotional fragility um, to people when they enter the public square, uh, where there's this notion that when we engage in public debate, that I should not be personally offended by what is said in the public square. And uh, for example, if you criticize my way of life or my fundamental life choices, I take that as an assault, a personal attack, and I consider it to be uncivil and even worthy of legal punishment. Uh, and I think this uh, indicates that there is a loss of realism about what public, what political discourse actually entails, uh, in the sense that political discourse will be contentious very often and it will be offensive to some people uh, because, uh, because we're different and we have different opinions. And so if there was one thing that I think is behind this movement towards hate speech, it's a refusal to accept that we are a diverse society, that there is diversity and pluralism, and that people will disagree in a very robust manner. There's a kind of a, a blindness to that or a turning, the, uh, the other, uh, turning away from vibrant difference, diversity and opposition, um, and this kind of myth that we can just have this perfect harmony. It's just an ideological construct. I would, that, I would agree with that as well. The, um, I would add that the, this sort of um, f- emotional fragility you mentioned, I think is, um, I mean, it comes from this sort of lo- loss of, of a communal feeling uh, that we have as well, because when you have a community, um, the community in many ways comes first, uh, not always, but often, but since the loss of community, um, since it's through the, through the decline of religion and uh, 
decline of patriotic feeling and so on, we have a certain loss of community only, as I said before, only what the individual himself or herself feels matters. And, and this sort of communal culture is replaced by an honor culture where, where the slightest um, perceived insult is, um, is, is taken as, um, as the um, end all and be all of, of social behavior. And I sort of see when we think of honor culture, we sort of think of, of medieval knights and such things. And, and that was a time, I mean, sort of um, generalizing now, of course, but that was a time when communal feeling itself was very weak. It was a time before um, before um, modern nation states had arisen and, uh, and when culture was very atomized and we sort of had a very uh, uh, individualistic, in certain ways, a certain individualistic honor culture then among certain classes. And we're sort of reversing to that now through the collapse of community. Uh, once again, the, the individual becomes the only social unit that's worth preserving and that leads to, uh, to the importance of one's own individual emotions. I would maybe also add that um, when you speak of a diverse society, of course, um, there is, I, th I think that's true that there is this refusal uh, to accept that we are indeed in a diverse society. On the other hand, it's a double-edged sword, I would say, because it is in turn the diverse society or the hyper-diverse society that has led to a certain loss of communal feeling. And so it sort of, it becomes a re sort of a, a, a feedback loop, if you will, uh, in which, uh, the fact that we are so diverse leads to the fact that we cannot, uh, we cannot unify around a certain set of ideas or principles, uh, and that in itself, then of course, is going to contribute to the uh, to the inability uh, to to have a communal feeling, and so the the uh, the emotions of the individual become paramount. Yes, and I think that the erosion of group life um, and the the sort of transformation of group life. Uh, in particular, its instrumentalization to politics um, has played an important role in that because what we understand as sort of the importance of the group and the association uh, nowadays very often becomes a kind of political cause that has to be pled before the, the state. And so, in other words, how we express and honor our particular community or group um, ends up playing out in the courts of law and ends up playing out in the court of public opinion. In the sense, each group wants to vindicate its value and its worth before the court of public opinion and uh, to litigate its worth in the courts. Um, I'm not saying all, all groups do this, but I think part of the spectacle that we see unfolding in our public culture of constant conflict and polarization has to do with the fact that groups cannot find their, their meaning and worth simply getting on with their social practices. They, they, they seem to have a need for very robust form of public recognition by the state and by the people at large, which in a way ends up negating the fact of diversity and pluralism because it, it, it tries to convert a national people into the community. Um, in a way that is simply not possible. The kind of community they're looking for can only be constituted at a local level. Um, and if you try to constitute it at a national level, you end up with national socialism in Germany, or you end up with crazy forms of populism nowadays, certain forms yeah. of populism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That is the, the feedback loop. So diversity is its own worst enemy, um, I think. And uh, because, again, it... it uh, 
it leads to this sort of neo-tribalism uh, where a sen- where the sense of a nation state or of a, or of a religious community um, where people have, of course, individual differences, but where there is at least a basic set of principles, uh, either religious principles or patriotic principles upon which people agree, um, uh, all get thrown by the wayside. And and uh, we, we have this sort of, instead of having one sort of large national tribe, if you will, for lack of a better word, we have a bunch of tribelets coexisting uh, right next to each other in the same space, which, uh, which uh, as we can see, uh, leads to a lot of trouble. I have to ask some questions here because I think that uh, methodologically speaking, it would be an interesting thing. Um, one of the issues that ha- takes place when people talk about the notion of equality, for instance, is that they do not qualify what kind of equality they're talking about. It seems to me that the same abstract approach towards the concept of equality is an approach that uh, towards the concept of diversity. Because we need to ask diversity of what? It seems to me that this is an important question that I don't hear discussed often. Because, for instance, a lot of the times, a lot of people that now claim diversity is not our strength, and in some cases I think that this is entirely correct, they are the people who would also say that a lot of the, you could say, utopian dreams of some people in the past were actually nightmares because they were trying to impose upon people a kind of homogeneity that stifled completely any kind of individualism and individuality. So it seems to me that one of the important things that should take place in public discussion is to ask what kinds of diversity are compatible, no, excuse me, what kinds of diversity are desirable, desirable and what other kinds of diversity are not and what other kinds of diversity are actually corrosive for societies. But it is very difficult to have these conversations when we cannot reason with, we cannot meet each other in the public domain as reasoners, but we constantly have to do with the protected sentimentality of some people by some other, let's say, within quotation marks, aspiring emancipators of them. So it seems to me that this is one important discussion that is not had. Because, for instance, if we think of uh, the political liberalism of John Rawls, John Rawls was implying, at least to my, from my reading, that you cannot have a society wh- where you have many sides trying to enforce their comprehensive moral doctrines. So clearly, there are some kind of divergences of opinion for roles, for instance, that are incompatible with a uh, vibrant and, and uh, good, function, well-functioning society. So it seems to me that this is something like an elephant in the room, that the slogan, diversity is our strength, does not show the problem with. What do, what do you think of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree that, um, that there are different ways to understand diversity and that it's, it's a good exercise to make explicit what we're talking about when we use this word diversity. Uh, you mentioned John Rawls, and in my view, Rawls's conception of diversity is rather individualistic um, because I think he understands diversity uh, as different, differing comprehensive doctrines or different, differing views of the world that different people might have. 
Um, and, and it seems to me that diversity is much more profound than that because it's not really just about different opinions about the world or different conceptions of the universe. Diversity is actually different ways of life yeah. and different ways of ordering public goods um, that you get across different communities and different associations. So I think that if we put the life of groups, if we, if we put that in the foreground and understand that individuals actually derive meaning in their life from participation in group life, then when we talk about diversity, we really must keep in mind that we're talking about different expressions of group life, not just different, uh, you know, different individual opinions, but we're talking about different expressions of group life. So for example, in a Muslim community, um, women may wear a veil and they may um, have, uh, uh, let's say, a role in their community that is very different than the role of men. Um, men may have more leadership roles in their community um, or may have a more public role in their community. Now, when you're confronted with an Islamic community, just I'm giving it as, as a specific concrete example, and then you might have, say, a more progressive, let's say, self-professedly progressive community, which is egalitarian in the way they understand gender roles. And in that community, they believe that it's, you know, it's just unacceptable for women to be expected to wear a veil in public or for women to have subordinate roles that are, like, less important in the public square. Um, so when those two communities meet, uh, there's really no way to philosophically resolve all their, yeah. their difference. You know, you just have to find a modus vivendi. You have to find a way in which they can somehow coexist in the same space. And this is the issue with multi multiculturalism, that there are all sorts of concrete questions that are not being asked about what is compatible with what else. Yeah, and I think this this goes into a thought I had in mind actually going into this discussion, which is that, uh, well, you mentioned roles, and I think there is a, a long tradition of philosophers, I would say Kant is the same way, for example, in this particular case, uh, of how there's this sort of naive feeling that if we all... Um, if we all sort of got together and uh, in, in, in all of our diversity, we would nonetheless all agree, ultimately, through education and so on, that that uh, Western liberal democracy is the best there is. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they don't maybe say it explicitly like that, but that sort of spirit that surely this is what we all think uh, permeates uh, uh, the entire tradition, I think, of, of liberalism uh, from Kant onwards. And they, and, and of course, this is not the case. Uh, we see that uh, there are uh, systems of living that are completely incompatible to one another. And, uh, in spite of liberalism's best efforts, there are certain things, there are certain ways of life that cannot be understood. There is the very naive understanding of diversity, since we're talking about the, the meaning of that word, on the part of a lot of Western leaders, uh, like uh, Justin Trudeau comes to mind, for example, that diversity really means um, different sort of different kinds of food and different holidays and so on, different types of dress, uh, and that uh, someone is someone. Uh, that being a devout um, Muslim, for example, uh, would just mean that one fasts on the Ramadan and, uh, and wears a veil and so on. But of course, uh, different cultures are much more deep-seated than that, and it influences what we think about the world, it influences what we think about uh, the society in which we live, 
what we think about the other triplets within our society. And so understanding that there are limits to diversity in that way is very important. Uh, let me ask uh, both of you, how, how should we go about understanding culture? And how is emotion, action, and possibly institutions related to it and the community that you mentioned before? I accept this is a sort of an abstract, difficult question, but I think that we touched upon it before, and I think it is incredibly important to get to be very meticulous about it so that we can understand exactly the importance of local community for our sentimentality. Yeah, I think culture is everything, and that goes back to the uh, to this sort of Western naivete that reduces culture uh, to... Uh, to sort of external things. Uh, they, they tend to think that culture is a question of eating with uh, chopsticks instead of a knife and fork, for example. Um, very superficial things because we ourselves, as we mentioned before, we ourselves, or at least as I mentioned before, we've become sort of detached from our past. Well, you, David, you also said uh, the, the expression of standing on the shoulders of giants. We've sort of forgotten that. We, when we don't know what, uh, when we no longer know what came before us, we no longer know all of the things that a culture implies and and that and that leads to this naivete where we think that culture is just a, a series of external signs we need to understand that culture is all-encompassing really and it includes uh, it runs the gamut from various ways of dress and and various ways of eating for example to uh, different belief systems including uh, uh, systems that bleed into the political sphere what we think is politically acceptable or not and when we understand that all of those things are involved in culture, then multiculturalism, of course, becomes much more problematic because we realize that that's going to have a very concrete effect on how we uh, organize our state. I would say that, um, yeah, I agree with all of all that, that was just said, but I, I also would say that my understanding of culture is, um, I remember reading a little bit about Bildung, the concept of Bildung in German, and um, basically, this idea, uh, well, Humboldt, for example, is one of the people who talked about culture in that sense. And as building up the person, it's, it's a way in which we shape our personality. So I would say culture is the factors that shape human personality and that um, are, can be decisive or highly influential in the development of human personality. And um, by human personality, I mean um, how we understand the world, how we understand ourselves in the world, but also, uh, I would say also what we desire, what we aspire to, what we hope for. Um, um, so it's both desire and knowledge and how those are channeled um, for me is, is culture. So you go to McDonald's and you eat at McDonald's, okay? It's not high culture. But it is part of that sense of culture in the sense that if you go every day to eat at McDonald's, that will shape how you understand food, how you understand eating with others, being at a table. All of that will be shaped by, you know, your, your everyday, your social structures, your economic structures. And how would you say that a, some patterns of emotions and actions relate to it? Because... You could definitely say that when we are talking about uh, food culture, we, we are talking about the kinds of actions that people perform when they are 
preparing food, when they're cooking it, when they, and when they eat it, and the way in which all this is integrated within their daily lives. So, what is the importance of emotions and for culture? Because it seems to me that whenever we are talking about cultures and we try to be a bit more specific, there is an element of emotionality going into it. For instance, we could say the level of uh, a kind of feeling of national pride or a kind of feeling of, of identification with a particular local community and the tendency to feel uh, a sort of increased solidarity with members of these groups. I mean, I'll just say on that and then I'll hand it over just, just to say that I think, um, I think that presenting beauty to people um, can shape their emotional life and their desires, um, how they perceive what is beautiful and what is attractive. And that depends on their upbringing uh, because children are highly imitative. And, you know, I just have the example of uh, my, my daughter who's 15 months old. You know, if she won't eat her food, I take a piece of her food and I eat it and I pretend that I love it. And it doesn't matter how, even if I hate it, I just say, oh, yum, 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 and I eat it, and then she wants it. Yeah. Um, and there is that sense in which children, but also adults, when they see their peers loving something, wanting something, liking something, they, they will start to see it as an object of desire and an object of you know, admiration. And uh, teenagers, obviously, this happens hugely among teenagers. I'm not saying that we're only shaped by what other people want, say that's a socialization it's part of socialization is where we're giving cues about what we should aspire to and um, i'm not a determinist i don't think that society fully determines our desires but i think when we talk about culture it is true that society and social behavior does influence the way we our, our emotions work and what we aspire to desire hope for etc right. yeah yeah, that's a good uh, good method. We used to get a box on the air usually when we didn't need our food, so uh, so that's I prefer I prefer your method. Uh, but the um, the you mentioned the beauty. I think that's um, that's also it's very important, um, and uh, it's uh, I think also part of education. Um, when uh, again, well, I guess it's a common theme, but we uh, that we don't understand um, the beauty that has come before us, uh, and that has uh, we all everyone sort of. Um, establishes his own or her own sense of beauty, and um, lacking a sense of communal beauty is um, is very detrimental. Uh, having having no aesthetic communal sense is very bad for community because one again one should um, be unified more or less. I mean, of course, again, there is room for individual differences, but um, around the, uh, around certain ideas of architecture and uh, and literature and so on and art and uh, Multiculturalism creates a sort of hodgepodge uh, of um, of competing uh, aesthetic claims, um, which is not always a bad thing. Of course, uh, obviously, all cultures have produced beauty in their own way, um, but it does lead to um, this sort of hodgepodge goes uh, hand in hand with the hyper individualism we have, in which um, everything is accorded the same time and respect um 
which in an abstract sense is not necessarily a bad thing, but as a member of a particular time and place, there are certain things that should be emphasized above others. And then of course one can go ahead, go beyond those and, and learn about other uh, aesthetic traditions as well. But, um, uh, but that as well, I think is, uh, is a hallmark of, uh, of how we have uh, sort of lost our way. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.